This is Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. You can find show notes linking to everything we discuss in the podcast at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. So in today's episode, we have an interview with Roland Smart, Vice President of Social and Community Marketing at Oracle, one of the world's largest software companies. But before we get into that, a few updates from the MEX community. We're still following up on all of the ideas and insights which came out of the MEX 16, the 16th international edition of the MEX conference that we held in London last month, 12th and 13th of October. You may have heard the previous episode of the podcast where Alex and I talked about some of our most memorable moments from the event and went into a bit of detail on what uh, some of those sessions meant and the insights from all the different speakers. There's now also a written summary that you can take a look at up on mobileuserexperience.com and we'll leave a link in the show notes to that. We've also been delighted to receive some very kind reviews of the podcast from you. Uh, Do please keep them coming. We love to hear your feedback. You can get in touch by email. It's designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com or send us a tweet. We're at mexfeed on Twitter. Better still, um, if you're able to post a review up on iTunes or wherever else you uh, get hold of the podcast from, that would be very much appreciated. Now, Roland Smart uh, is someone who we met way back in the early days of the MEX initiative, where he was actually leading marketing for Adaptive Path. Now, Adaptive Path, for those of you who have not come across it before, uh, was a very interesting early pioneer uh, of user-centered design and the whole practice of of user experience, uh, which has subsequently been acquired by Capital One the bank. Uh, and we put a, a post up on that when the acquisition happened a couple of years ago, again at mobileuserexperience.com. Uh, and since then, Roland has gone on to a variety of different roles, um, always uh, around marketing leadership within organizations of different sizes. Uh, and the business that he was working for as vice president of marketing in Volvo, a social technology company, was then acquired by Oracle, uh, and he's been with them for some time. He's also recently written uh, a book which caught our eye, The Agile Marketeer, looking at how some of the concepts which have become so accepted around agile within the product management world uh, can be learned from and applied uh, by people within marketing to ensure that organizations stay in sync when they're trying to deliver a better overall customer experience to their users. Here's our interview with Roland. Hope you enjoy it. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of Mex. And I'm Alex Guest, the Mex Design Talk co-host. We're delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Roland Smart. Roland is the VP of Social and Community Marketing at Oracle. He is also the author of The Agile Marketeer. And 
the co-host of a podcast on the same subject himself. Roland, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I understand you're taking a bit of time out of your vacation to be here as well. Uh, and you know, nice in the world? Yeah, I'm in uh, Jackson, Wyoming. Beautiful place if you've ever been here. Um, right, little town next to the Grand Teton. So lovely, lovely spot. But I'm happy to be talking about this topic. Um, it's something that I'm obviously very, very passionate about. And um, suffice it to say, when you're writing a book, um, I, I did spend some vacation time working on that as well. So... <laughs> In fact, that was one of the first things that I wanted to ask you. I'm conscious that given the diversity of the different roles that you've been involved in, there's a whole range of different directions we could go in. But the one really burning question I had is is around your book. Um, mm -hmm. You know, to take on something like that is a big undertaking. Can you remember the moment when you actually decided that you were going to do that for definite and the book was going ahead? Yes. Uh so it was actually, um, I was on paternity leave and I was actually here in Jackson, Wyoming, um, with, m with my, um, young son, son and my wife. Um, I was here for about a month and I was, I started working on the book then, but it's an interesting story because I didn't start from scratch in many respects. I'd started working on the book several years before that in the form of blog posts. And, you know, I've, I've written, probably at this point, you know, hundreds of blog posts. And though those blog posts really were a place for me to flush out a lot of the ideas that, um, that are, that are in the book and, you know, taking an agile approach to writing a book in a way is writing a blog post, getting feedback on that blog post rewriting that blog post or updating that blog post ba based on the feedback that people give you. And then years later, you know, taking some of those blog posts and reordering them to tell more of a narrative. And of course, then I eventually uh, worked with an editor who helped me um, get the book to where it needed to be. I also, while I was writing the book um, and while I was stitching it all together, it was a giant Google Doc, and I had about uh, 20, 20 people in my network, most of whom were, were marketers, but some business people and some, you know, just colleagues that I'd worked for uh, or with in different roles in there providing me feedback as I was working. So one of the things that sort of makes the book interesting in my view is that it's gone through this process of a lot of feedback and a lot of iteration uh, as it's gotten to the, the current version, of course, that was published in print. Well, it's great to see it out there. And I guess it was one of the reasons why you and I were able to reconnect. I mean, I think we first got to know each other way back in the days when you were working with Adaptive Path, uh, a pioneer of the, the user experience world. And uh, when yep. I saw the, the book which you'd published, it was a good prompt to get back in touch and, and get the conversation going again. Now, I think most of our listeners will be familiar with Agile as a process, um, but your book and your work as a whole, I, I guess, focuses on quite a specific uh, spin on that, if you like, how it relates particularly to the world of marketing uh, and particularly the alignment of marketing with other parts of the product development process, which may already be using Agile process. 
Now, yep. where did that develop from? Um, clearly, you've spent a lot of time uh, in with a foot in, in both of those worlds. Um, but is that something which predated uh, the decision to, to write the book? Yes, yeah, certainly. So you mentioned Adaptive Path. I, you know, while I was there, I was really introduced to a, a better way of doing product management, right? I mean, Adaptive Path was a UX and design firm, but at some very basic level, what they would really do is they would go into a customer and teach them how to do product design and product management more effectively. And they would do that by doing a project with that customer. But the goal was to actually train them and upgrade their practice so that they could go on to do a lot of this kind of work on their own. And so in many respects, that's when I got introduced to some of the the agile approach but to be frank back then we weren't they weren't really talking about it in the context of agile and i think that this is something that a lot of marketers experience today is that they've integrated bits and pieces of agile into a way that they work but they don't necessarily call it that and so one of the things one of the benefits of putting a name on it is that it it lets marketers and other people organize around the practices and um, you know build community around it and share best practices and so on. So there's definitely value uh, associated with sort of putting a name on it, so to speak. But so that's kind of when I got introduced to it. There were um, some marketers that I had an opportunity to work with who were pursuing. Uh, the the trying to adapt agile into the context of marketing. So a guy that I worked with as an example of this at um, Involver, a social technology company that I worked at, a guy named Yashikaikis Wolf. He was he's been um, a champion of implementing agile in the marketing context for for quite a while. He was actually one of the first guests on the Marketing Agility podcast. We just had him back uh, a couple weeks ago, and I don't actually think that. Um, podcast has gone live yet, but it will go soon. And then, of course, there's there's a whole set of reasons why I think uh, Agile is gaining uh, traction with marketers. One you mentioned is that it can really help facilitate better collaboration between marketing and product management because it can it can serve as a substrate for collaboration between those two organizations and i think you know we can talk much more about that topic but then there's also the fact that you know marketers are just managing more technology than ever before and agile is the best practice for managing software so there's kind of that no-brainer reason to do it that's that's um, very very straightforward whether or not um, you've really started finding the connection points that Agile offers between, uh, you know, currently siloed functions within your business. Yeah, that uh, influence on the dynamics of teams, I think, is something which really gets to the heart of where you're going with the book and, and the role that Agile has to play in, in bridging those relationships between marketing, design, product management. Uh, now, I know that in advance uh, of this, we have been doing a little bit of homework for one of the traditions of the MEX Design Talk podcast, which is our 
show and tell. Um, Alex, perhaps for listeners who are joining us for the first time, you could give us a quick reminder uh, of what we do with this show and tell, uh, and we could go through it and then perhaps come back and talk a little bit more about um, some of the work that Roland's been doing after that. Sure. So, Marek, for, for those of us who, who uh, or for those of our listeners who haven't uh, previously heard an episode, uh, essentially the show and tell is just a brief uh, period where we, uh, each in advance of the episode, We'll do a little bit of research and then come back and, and, and share something that we want to, to, to share with, with each other and, and obviously with the listeners. So uh, but let's, let's, let's dive in. Um, Roland, tell me, um, what, is, what, is it, what is it you'd like to share with listeners? Yeah, so uh, thanks, for, thanks for giving me the assignment, getting me to think about this in advance. So one of the things that this is obviously very related to the adoption of, of agile in the marketing context, you know, but I've thought a lot about how do I structure my teams, the, the folks who are working for me in ways that are going to really help them work best together and uh, be sort of optimally productive because there's different personalities and work styles uh, for different individuals on my team. And I recently read an article uh, called What Google Learned from the Quest to Build the Perfect Team. This was an article from the New York Times that I highly recommend um, checking out. The researchers at Google spent a lot of time looking at different teams inside of Google. Um, These are um, typically small cross-functional teams, trying to understand why some of these teams really outperformed others. And, you know, a lot of the sort of common wisdom about what makes teams uh, effective were, were debunked in, in, as part of this research. And they sort of landed on something that uh, really resonated with me and that I've been thinking about since reading the article about teams that have shared social norms. So I won't um, go too much more deeply into it than, than saying that I think this offers a really, really unique perspective for any manager that's trying to to build cross-functional teams. Uh, and we can put a link in the show notes as well to the article so that listeners can check that out. It's uh, yeah. very much second Rowan's view on this. It's well worth a read and we'll make sure there's a, a link in those show notes to go and take a look at it. Are you essentially saying then, uh, or, or rather does this article essentially say that it's all about being friends or, or does it go a little bit further than that? Um, no, it's it's not about being um, friends. Uh, it, it's more about having what they describe as shared social norms, um, accepted ways of interacting with each other that are sort of known and respected. And, you know, it, it talks about the fact that it's not that there is a set of social norms that are associated with more productive teams. In fact, there, if you look across these highly productive teams, there are some quite a diverse set of social norms, and they're not consistent across these teams. But what is consistent is that there's, you know, on any one team, there is a knowledge and understanding and acceptance and adherence to the social norms that that team has embraced. So I think that's a really kind of interesting idea. And, you know, the, the article can can um, tell the story much better than than I can possibly recount here, but it's it's definitely well worth a read. the The second thing that I would share is so the, I actually came across that article when I was planning a team offsite, 
which um, my team, we do, we get together a couple times each year, but one of those times is really focused on thinking about how we can work together better as a team and then spending a little bit of time thinking about um, the future of the team and where we're headed. And I always try and make that event better each year. And we sort of iterate on the format of the event. And we've tried things that didn't work. And we, we've tried some things that have worked really um, well. And, you know, it's putting together an annual event is always one of these things where, you know, you get a lot of advice about what the right way to do it is from facilitators. And, you know, they come to the table with things like, well, you know, you should have everybody do the Myers-Briggs test and get their personality types. And that's going to help you. And I think what the Google research shows is actually that's that's not true. Their personality type is irrelevant. It's social norms that are much more important. And I should also say caveat here, my wife happens to be a psychologist. And so, you know, she helped me understand that, you know, there's, there's pretty much no efficacy behind the Myers-Briggs test and, and uh, as a predictor of the way that people interact together. So there's just a lot of stuff to debunk in this space. But I recently came across this exercise, which I wrote a blog post about um, called a brilliant team building Lego exercise. And maybe you can put that link in, in the show notes as well. We, we and it's will. A, I feel it's a shame that we weren't able to be joined by our colleague Patricia as well, um, who's a Lego serious play facilitator. I feel like she'd be the, the lady to be present for this conversation. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I actually looked a little bit. I tried to see if this was part of the serious play portfolio. It is not. Um, but it probably should be. Um, it's really a brilliant exercise that, um, again, I won't go too deep into it, but, um, it is a game that you, you, you need about eight an 18 plus person team and they break up into three and four people team person, um, groups and they are given a, a set of cards and there's a pile of Legos in the center of the room and they have to build something that conforms to the clues on their cards. And nobody's allowed to talk. And the reason that this is really, really interesting is that you can start to see the social norms come out as the group tries to self-organize and get things done. So I found this exercise to be really a nice complement to the research, the Google research, because it helped sort of shine a light on what the social norms were and help the team articulate what those social norms were and figure out what kinds of groupings should we have within our team in terms of which sets of people are the ones who are more likely to sort of want to and be more productive um, when they work together. Great. So, so I mean, you've done this obviously in a, in a big company setting where you have teams that are as big as 18 or, or possibly even bigger and, and you can then break it down into smaller uh, groups. How, how can we apply this, say, to, to small companies or small startups even, really early stage startups that might only have, say, three, four, five people in total? Or, or does this not really apply to, to that sort of uh, scale of company? I think it does. I mean, I think my my Lego building exercise probably won't, but I do think that the the research is just as relevant. You know, I think that there are probably other ways and maybe even better ways at getting people to articulate what the social norms are that the the team cares about and, and wants to embrace. 
um, you know, that's that's not my particular area of expertise or, or focus. That's sort of more the domain in, in which my wife as a psychologist would would operate. But um, I certainly think the, the research is, is relevant for any team that is working together. One of the things which comes through to me from really both of these examples, Roland, is, uh, as you say, they're highlighting that need for an understanding of, of social norms. And I guess to a degree also the importance of having a universal vocabulary, particularly when you're bringing together different parts of an organization with a view, say, to making them more customer focused, as people within the the MEX community will be familiar with. And by necessity, you're going to be bringing together groups of people who may not work together frequently. Uh, who may mm-hmm. work together with uh, quite different professional vocabularies, and yet they need to find a way rapidly to come together and focus on making some change happen as a, a group. And we certainly found with uh, the Lego serious play exercises that we've done through Patrizia and, and with the MEX initiative, uh, that that's one of the best ways to expedite that among groups who don't know each mm-hmm. other that the lego bricks um although you know they're colorful and interesting and they often have an association with childhood and giving people a bit more freedom in some ways the fact that they're lego bricks isn't really the most important thing the fact that it's a universal uh, currency um, which can then be parlayed into a universal vocabulary for talking about a problem mm-hmm. uh, is one of the things which really helps to get that uh, set of social norms established within a group that perhaps doesn't know each other too well or is coming together for the uh, the first few times. Yeah, I'm not I'm not that familiar with the um, with the serious play format, but I would guess that it probably has certain commonalities with, or it probably taps into some of the the Google research. I mean, one very simple example that, that comes out of the, this research or I would say that the research validates is that there's simple things that you can look for. Like, are the people in the room having as much time to talk as each other? In other words, you know, do you have a team in which there's somebody who just isn't talking as much or isn't given enough as much time to talk, right? That's probably a signal that there's not good alignment or a good shared agreement around social norms, right? So there's probably an issue there. And there's there's a bunch of other things that they speak about in the in the article that can be tools that you can use to sort of identify um, potential challenges and and you know help maybe nudge the team in the right direction. Fantastic. Um, so, Marek, just turning to you now. What um, what did you come across that uh, you'd like to share with listeners? Well, the theme of Agile as a whole uh, got me thinking about how it aligns uh, often with uh, the overall design ethos, if you like, of an organization. Uh, and it reminded me of something which a company called Artifact, they're a design agency based out of Seattle, who have participated in MEX previously, have been doing over the last little while, which is their design maturity survey. Uh, and they've put together this interactive questionnaire that you can go through as a company or an individual uh, to try and understand where you benchmark against other organizations of certain sizes in terms of that overall embracing of the methods which are crucial to being customer-centered and then being able to deliver on that customer centricity within the way you develop uh, products. And 
clearly agile is often associated with that sort of behavior it's um, not always the the whole answer but it's something which uh, comes out of it and uh, i guess linking a little bit to uh, some of what's hinted at by that google article that roland mentioned one of the other findings was that the initial results seem to suggest that actually um, things like appointing a chief design officer or trying to do a very top-down approach to design as opposed to a kind of bottom-up approach to design where you listen to all of the inputs coming from all of the different parts of the organization, be they marketing or design or product management, really anyone who has exposure to customers, actually uh, doing that top-down approach and bringing in a kind of star designer to direct things often doesn't correlate with overall design maturity within an organization. Mm -hmm. It's the organizations which approach that sort of uh, broader view of where customer centricity and how they go through those iterations and how they involve different departments within those iterations of their products, uh, which end up having the highest level of design maturity. So again, we'll put a link in the show notes to this. You can go and take the design maturity survey for yourself uh, and see some of those initial results which are coming out of it. But I went through it personally yeah. and found it a very interesting process and would be interested to hear from listeners what they thought after they've had a chance to go through it. And so, Marek, just, just diving into that a little bit further, um, what, what are the actual outputs of a company that has a strong design ethos? I mean, are there certain um, companies that... that consistently you know produce products that 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 are somehow customer centric what exactly whatever that exactly means uh, i think people have different ideas of what customer centricity is but but clearly there's this you, you there's something tangible here and and uh, it'd be great to just sort of dive into that and just have a feel for what that really means in in, in practical terms well, my understanding is uh, with Artifact specifically, uh, they're still gathering the survey data at the moment. So they've released a few initial results, but they haven't yet got to a conclusion on particular companies or particular industries which are better at doing this. But I suspect that may be coming in the future if you watch their social feeds. I'm sure they'll share the results as they come out. To give a personal view on it, um, I think often it's as much about how an organization uh, develops those products over the long term as it is those individual hits. Even if you look at things which are continuously held up as being real benchmark examples of the application of user-centered design, and you know, Apple is the one which uh, springs to mind first of all, and certainly it's led to a great deal of financial success for them with things like the iPhone. Um, but if you look at the history of that product, um, it is a history of continuous iteration uh, and going through that process of listening to customers, um, often then being seen to do things which aren't necessarily aligned directly with what all of their customers were saying, uh, but being able to make those kind of tangential leaps to where customers uh, don't yet know they need to go, but doing that very much in an iterative way and sustaining that for a long period of time. Uh, and to me, that's one of the hallmarks of an organization which has design maturity, uh, is that ability to be in it for the long haul uh, and not just to rely on individual flash-in-the-pan, mm. one-off products. But because often that's what happens, isn't it? A company gets stuck in a rut and they suddenly realize they need to overhaul their product line. Uh, and they come up with something shiny and new, and and it works. Um, and then then they then they start milking the cow again, and, and perhaps they get stuck. 
So I, I wonder whether there are some 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 practices, and Roland, maybe you can jump in here and just let us know some, some ways of just maintaining that, su- well, sustaining a sort of design maturity thinking, mm-hmm. something that's really ingrained into uh, the company as a whole and that it permeates um, all the teams that happen to be working for, for, for the different product lines within a within an organization. Yeah, so I mean, when I, so you mentioned that they've published some initial findings. When I look across the initial findings, I see a lot here that is very, very complementary or just derivative of um, the Agile Manifesto. So one example is, the first one is small, is sometimes better. Um, This idea, Agile, one of the principles baked into Agile is that we try and break work into small iterative releases. We try and break organizations and teams into small cross-functional teams. So this idea of building, uh, breaking things down into small components that can be worked on is really a central concept within Agile, right? That plays itself out in terms of the backlog of tasks um, or user stories that you're going to be working on, and it plays itself out in the structure of Agile teams, which tend to be small cross-functional teams rather than siloed teams like the design organization that all the designers live in, right? It's more an agile approach would be to, you might have a central design team that serves as a center of excellence, but really design is going to be deployed into the cross-functional team and distributed throughout the organization. So that's much a much more resilient approach. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, it prevents silos uh, fr- from forming. I think there's, a, there's another one here uh, it's actually their their third one, where that you already mentioned the chief design officer is not a savior. This idea that you know you're not going to hire this chief design officer on top who's going to um, transform the organization. This idea that innovation, and this can be in the context of product management, design, or marketing, sixty percent of the innovation is going to come from the bottom up not from the top down, right? That's a very different worldview and a very different approach, right? Waterfall, which is the, you know, the traditional approach is very different in this regard. It, it is one where direction is sort of given from the top down and the organization follows through, um, you know, as, as direction and guidance is cascaded down through the organization. Agile is a very different kind of structure. It's more of a matrix um, structure where the teams on that are doing the work, these cross-functional teams, are empowered to make business decisions, of course, based on some guidelines and based on the strategic direction of the company, but they are able to go in a different direction, and they're able to throw things out when they um, deem that it is necessary to do so. And so one metaphor um, that I that I think is a good one and that I use to sort of talk about this is that it's kind of the difference between having a stoplight versus a roundabout. With a stoplight, um, you've got a situation where, you know, somebody looked down at the, the, the city map and programmed all those lights. And, um, you know, it, those lights were programmed to optimally manage traffic through the city. And if you're in a car, you, you, the, you don't have to do much work. All you have to do is see whether the thing says is red or green, and then it tells you what to do. But with a roundabout, you know, you're pushing a lot of the decision making down to the bottom, where 
you know, any driver going into the uh, roundabout is going to has to look around and figure out what's the context right now. And they're basing their decisions based on real time data. What is happening right now? Whereas the person who programmed the stoplights is looking, programming those lights based on historical data, old data. And so it puts more onus on the driver who's going in the roundabout to make decisions. They're empowered to do things. The benefit, of course, is that um, roundabouts are much more efficient than stoplights. They actually have much more um, throughput. Yes, it's harder for the driver, but the benefit is worth it because um, they're making much smarter decisions and those decisions translate into more productivity or more throughput in this case. So this idea of you know having this top-down leader who is going to um, transform the organization, I don't think that that's really what it's about unless that top-down leader is one who's focused on implementing Agile and less focused on you know prescriptively um, defining the design direction. And I guess by extension then, I guess this is a bit of a challenge to the, to the design community is if, um, uh, if, if you're running an organization and you're, and you're a little bit stuck and you need a new direction, potentially calling in an agency is, is fairly similar to hiring a, a, a big design hero. And, and so I, I wonder whether that's also a, a slightly dangerous and short-term route to go down or whether the, you know it gives you a sort of a short-term panacea but then you really need to sort out the, the the design ethos for the long term yeah i guess that's a there's a lot to answer that question I, I think that agencies can still be valuable to bring in an outside perspective and to help a company get out of their comfort zone or get out of um, the perspective that they sort of bring to a problem. But I will say that I think that agencies, certainly for companies that have embraced Agile, agencies have yet to sort of really figure out how they can be very compatible with that model. Because one of the things about Agile is that you, you kind of really need to own it. You, it's hard to have a highly productive cross-functional team that is not connected into the rest of the teams in the organization. It's hard to bring in an outside cross-functional team that's going to focus on something, unless that project they're focusing on is really, really isolated. Um, the whole thing about Agile also is that it, you're moving away from this campaign-based approach to work where something has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And then you put it away and you work on the next campaign with its beginning, middle, and end. Agile takes much more of a programmatic approach to the work that we do. And so it's more about building a minimum viable product, working on it, validating that there's a there there and that there's value there, and then continuing to iterate on it over time. Well, unless you're planning on working with an agency for the foreseeable future, that model is just not super complementary with the the agency structure now i mean i think the agency space is being disrupted you know i think agencies are trying to figure out how they can be more compatible one of the ways that i see agencies starting to do this is that they're actually coming into companies as in the role of the agile coach and training companies how to behave in a more agile fashion and so that's essentially an agency becoming more like a consultancy. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting intersection point at the moment. And I mean, it's certainly something that I've noticed within all of the different participants that we have in the MEX community, many of whom would uh, have 
define themselves or still continue to define themselves as agencies, but increasingly uh, finding themselves doing work which more perhaps traditionally would have aligned with the work of management consultancies. On the other hand, you have all of the large management consultancies, professional services firms hiring design agencies themselves or acquiring design agencies themselves. Uh, And there's almost this sort of school disco effect of two groups standing across the dance floor, looking at each other and finally getting to the point of, uh, you know, asking each other into the middle of the floor for a dance uh, and learning a little bit about how each other works and, uh, you know, finding that there's a lot of commonality there, but that actually there's a lot of nuance to the ways in which they each deliver their their different projects. And it really is causing, you know, quite a, a transformation in the way these different projects are commissioned. But I'm interested um, from the perspective of the different organizations you have worked with over the years, Roland, to hear a little bit more uh, about whether there's any correlation uh, among the organizations. Because I know you've uh, spent time with agencies like Adaptive Path. You've worked with smaller startups. You now work for a very large software company uh, in Oracle. Uh, And are you finding that there is any correlation between um, the... uh, desire, if you like, to implement something like agile methodologies across the board and to extend that to marketing and to understand the benefits of doing that, as opposed to keeping it something which is specific, say, to the product development organization. You know, have you been able to spot any key characteristics which mean that management are willing to do this uh, and to, to embrace that process? Yeah, so uh, I'll start just by going back to adaptive path because i think as an organization what made them really unique was that they behaved yeah i love that metaphor you just shared about um, agencies and consultancies staring at each other across the dance floor i i think adaptive path just kind of blew that up and they started with we combining those two things so they were absolutely a consultancy in the sense that they could work with executive management and help them understand the value of design thinking and about the value of embracing some agile principles even if they weren't necessarily calling it that at that time um but then they could actually go in there and do a project with the team in the company, right? They would basically, so in Agile, um, in the software development world, there's this concept of pair programming where you have um, two programmers sitting next to each other and one of them is actually writing the code and the other one is basically looking at the requirements and, and sort of being the navigator, if you were to put it in sort of the flight uh, metaphor. One is the pilot, one is the navigator, right? And having those two people collaborating together enriches the code that gets output because um, it, it having two eyes on it tends to eliminate um, errors that get made, but it also um, tends to, when you've got somebody to dialogue with, um, you can come up with interesting ideas and produce more efficient code. Well, that concept of pair programming, if you translate that into the product management world or the marketing world, um, you know, one interpretation is to have this outside agency basically sit with the internal staff and do a project with them and give them the skills that they need to be able to then sort of take the project forward on their own as the consultancy or the agency steps back and the, the company sort of does it on their own. And of course, they it doesn't have to be a black and white thing. They can sort of have check-ins and and go back to the consultancy. And I think this is what happened at Adaptive Path. And if they ran into problems or struggles that they couldn't figure out, again, they'd go back to Adaptive Path for for assistance. So this is a really, really good model, I think, for um, 
evolving the way that companies approach their work and embracing agile. When I was at um, Involver, the social technology company that um, Oracle acquired, that's how I joined Oracle, um, we did a very similar engagement to that with a company called Pivotal, where they came in, they partnered with us for three iterations on a project, and then they stepped away and they, we continued iterating. So um, it helped that they were able to interface with our executive management and get the buy-in that was needed at that level. Um, but they were also able to work directly with the people who are actually doing the work. So there was this sort of top-down and bottom-up approach that led to, uh, you know, what I would call the change management that took place in, inside of Involver. Now, when you try and take that into a really, really big company like Oracle, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a very, very different kind of environment. Uh, you know, for one thing, I'd say, you know, there's there's not a, executive management at Oracle is not, I think, very aware of agile as a transformative agent um, for the company. There There is no top down sort of edict or buy in to adopting agile. I think if you look at the the maturity of cycle or the life cycle of an organization that, that adopts agile, you know, it, it, it's pretty drif- different from a at a small company than it is for a big company because at small companies, there's just not that much dis- distance between executive management and the people who are doing the work. At big companies, there's a lot of distance there that needs to be bridged. So that's why, you, you know, you talked a minute before about these consultants companies, like uh, consulting companies like the McKin- uh, McKinsey's and the Boston Consulting Groups, that you're absolutely right. They've acquired a bunch of these agencies and they're building out um, teams that are all about helping uh, big companies transform the way that they work. And they're doing that by going into the top of the organization and selling the value in there and then driving it um, down into the company. But then there's also people like myself and a cohort of other, um, you know, in the case of marketing, marketers who have come into Oracle through acquisitions. Oracle has acquired an incredible portfolio of marketing technology over the last four years. And with that portfolio, we've also brought in a cohort of really, really smart marketers who grew up in the startup world and who have an appreciation for adopting agile in the marketing context and who are entrepreneurial, right? And they're just building agile. They're using agile with their teams. Now that's fairly siloed though, right? So inside of a company like Oracle, that means that there's lots of mid-level managers or even senior managers who are, who have implemented agile without necessarily having that top down, um, uh, guidance to do so. So the challenge for a really big company is how do they get those two things um, to meet in the middle? Because if those mid-level managers who come in through acquisition, who maybe they're going to stay with the company between you know um, two and and six years, uh, you know when they leave, that their teams are going to fall back onto waterfall unless there's that top-down component. So. This is sort of what I see the really big companies going through. And, you know, I, I think the role that these consultancies have to play is going to be really interesting. That's that, you know, I think that the fact that McKinsey and Boston Consultant Groups are building out these teams is a real validation that there's a need for it. And they see that, you know, these big companies need to be able to transform to become more agile. So I'm sort of in the thick of it at a, one of those very big companies where, 
there, there are a bunch of people in silos using Agile, but it hasn't yet sort of started coming from the top down. Yeah, I find it interesting to look at the motivations which guide the commissioning of a lot of these projects, whether it's a large organization commissioning a design agency specifically, or whether they're working with a professional services firm. I think often the the motivation, the driver for why that particular project gets greenlit in the first place uh, can often be really telling in terms of how it then plays out within the, the organization. And quite often right. the solution or uh, the goal, um, if it's properly aligned with customer values actually doesn't change all that much you know customer needs and expectations um, can often be boiled down to quite core things which remain fairly constant over longer periods of time what changes is the fashion in motivations and at the moment there is this very strong fashionable motivation around you know we need to do something around digital and experience design therefore we must be looking for an agency which has a skill set associated with that a reputation associated with that uh, so there's you know, quite a clear business driver on the part of these professional services organizations yeah. uh, to buy those kind of companies because it's a way of going in. And then, of course, all of a sudden, those issues which you're referring to about the way teams work together, the way that fits into the overall organizational structure, how you do that in a way which balances those sort of external viewpoints with training up internal teams, all of those things start to come to the fore because when you try to do yes. something innovative or you try to break some new ground, you suddenly start to realize actually the processes which are in place are maybe not fit for purpose. Um, so the motivations often yes. change, but they quite often reveal the same set of problems once those projects are, uh, are are actually underway. Well, you're really speaking to one of the central ideas in my book about one of the values of adopting Agile being this bridge between product management and marketing. So I think, you know, the, 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 if you look at what causes a really big organization like Oracle, but I, actually, I think this is true at small organizations too, to adopt Agile and the marketing side of the house, what you see is that, you know, these are organizations where they're, they tend to be product-driven organizations. They've adopted Agile in the product management world, and they are iterating on, you know, a monthly basis. And, you know, on the other side of the fence, you've got marketing that's still using waterfall, and they're thinking uh, six months ahead. And so there's this disconnect where, you both started day one or sprint zero, so to speak, for the product management side, and they've done a lot of pivots. And then six months later, marketers get somewhere where they're ready for their big event or whatever it is, and they're just no longer in sync with product management. So that's the beginning, that pain, which is a pain for obviously for product management because they want to get their stuff to market and they need marketing's help to do that. But there's also marketing feeling like they're ready to you know, go, but suddenly they're trying to bring something to market that's different than what they had thought they were going to get. So, you know, it's marketers, you know, product management really sort of revolutionized the way that they worked when they embraced Agile, right? That, this is not new. The Agile Manifesto was written over 15 years ago. But, you know, marketers haven't gone through this complementary modernization of the way that, that we work. And so we're really taking a page out of product management's book so that we can stay in sync with the way that they are working 
and so that we can you know really support them with with a go-to-market approach so there's a lot of change on the marketing side that's required to be able to do that how we structure our teams right how we um you know think about the the future and think about um making this transition away from the the sort of traditional waterfall approach so there's absolutely um, these are the things that are that are driving the change in in the marketers' world. Yeah, and it, and it seems as though uh, I mean, you know, marketing really kind of I suppose as, as a discipline grew out of the 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 FMCG, the fast-moving consumer goods uh, industry, where you know we're talking about the Procter and Gambles and Unilevers of this world, you know, who produce yep. um, all, all, all these sort of uh, from shampoos to, to to detergents and so forth, um, through to through to mustards and pickles. And um, I, I guess you know for for that world, it's it, I think it still is, but is 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 starting to evolve away from this idea that you um, you spend a lot of time and research and money getting a, a product ready for market, and then you you, you know you, you do your that's done quite a lot in sync with with the marketing people who who are probably managing mm-hmm. the whole process, the brand people. But they're also working with external agencies, uh, advertising agents, and so forth, and they develop campaigns, which is something that you referred to earlier as well. And and that whole process is very, very divorced from uh, agile. It's it's nothing like agile at all. Um, and I and I wonder whether FMCG companies are going to be able to evolve to this much faster way of working, much more iterative way of working, and, and whether the 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 knock-on effect is also that we stop talking about campaigns even even in the advertising world um, and and start moving into into something that is agile so I, th- I think that what you described about the traditional way that marketing approaches are work when, when it comes to things like research and sometimes that research can take months to do so I think the the challenge for marketers is to figure out how to do that kind of research at the pace that can keep up with whether it's monthly iterations or, or what have you on the product management side. But I think the, the good news is that marketers are really like, we own the relationship with the customer. And so it means that we have a unique role to play when it comes to um, collaborating with product management. When they need to test something, marketers are still there. We just need to, um, w- we need to own that relationship and support the agile process. That That can mean taking that MVP or mini version of the product and bringing it into a very small part of our market to actually test it, you know, with real customers in the live, live in in the wild, so to speak, rather than doing, let's say, a three-month exhaustive bit of research that isn't going to be able to keep up with product management and be able to support the the timelines that they want to get something out to market. So I think marketers are still uniquely positioned as um, you know, the, the conduit between the community or, or the consumers and the product management organization. But we just need to change and update the way that we make that audience available to be able to support agile iteration. I think the example of the FMCG industry is interesting as well. It's, uh, and um, rather like Roland was describing with Oracle and the acquisitions of marketing technology companies, I wonder if that's something which in the FMCG world will have an effect as well, because we have noticed over the last several years a, a real increase in the number of large FMCG companies acquiring these small 
community-focused brands, which tend to grow from a much more uh, bottom-up sort of uh, an approach, um, where you end up with a particular brand, say, in an area of health food or nutrition. There have been ones in uh, smoothie business or in chocolate or in uh, potato crisps, you know, th- those sort of things, which uh, get acquired by these large brands. Uh, and they bring with them all of those sort of um, guerrilla, much more fast-paced marketing skills and that uh, much greater awareness of the relationship with the consumer and the ability to parlay that into to design decisions about where the brand needs to go. So perhaps that will be something which helps to yes. speed it up within FMCG. I don't think it's fundamentally different from what's happening inside of even a company like Oracle, where we're acquiring these small startups. One, there's two parts of that. One part is defensive in that it slows down the market, right? We take some of the competition off of the table. But the other thing is that it's helping us actually um, manage this internal transformation that we have to do by bringing in the talent from those companies. So I, I think there's there's two separate components to it that are both really, really important for really big companies to stay competitive over the long term. Yeah, and, and, and hopefully that is what does happen in the future with, of FMCG, because I guess historically they've, they've always bought up small companies and, and they've really stripped out a lot of the, the workforce and, t- and taken the product and attached it to their their incredibly sophisticated distribution systems through through yep. retail outlets, which you know which are massive, and that, and that that reach is is, is phenomenal. And, and they have marketing organisations that are well placed to use uh, you know their their relationships with advertising agencies and so forth to to to, to really sell new products. But often, what gets lost is, um, I guess, the, the the personality of of the product that's been bought in the first place. Uh, except as 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 a brand in in you know, and and really here, I'm just talking about the the sort of the shiny cover that goes on top of a product, rather than 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 the real brand, which is about that customer engagement. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a perennial tension that exists between really big companies and small companies, right? And there's a there's a balance that happens there. I think. Um, you know, from my perspective, having been at both small companies and now at a very big company, uh, I, I think that the big companies recognize that they have to transform, right? They're, they're never going to be as agile as the small guys are going to be, but they have to be a lot more agile than they are today if they're going to be able to remain relevant and remain um, competitive. So, you know, th- they've got to do this work of transformation because the reality is is that there's those small companies are going to continue to get built and they're going to continue to iterate and you know even though these big companies have large war chests at some point like they they can't acquire every small company that that comes up so you know there, there's a balancing act here that that needs to be to be respected and i think if you look at a company like oracle we're going through this just incredible transformation right now where we're we're moving our products and services into the cloud almost across the board right and if you think about the transformation that that requires inside of a 130 or 140,000 person company it's amazing. We're talking about moving mountains, right? Imagine moving from a world in which you had a packaged product or a, a product that you delivered a version on every year to moving to an environment where you're, mo- you're delivering product in the cloud on a monthly basis, updates. And you know that pr- 
changes completely the way that you need to organize your internal teams. It, it changes the relationship between marketing and product management. I mean, it's just this incredible monumental change. And it's not something that will happen overnight. It's something that will require a lot of talent coming in from acquired companies. It's going to acquire a lot of um, people who have been at the company for a long time to be entrepreneurial and to do the change management. It's going to require leadership change. It's probably going to require some outside consultants to work with the leaders and also to bring training uh, to support the actual teams doing the work. You're talking about a very complex um, transformation that happens over years, you know, five, 10 years, not something that can happen in, in a year. I mean, there's, there's another challenge here for, for, for big companies. I mean, I, I many years ago worked for uh, a financial services company uh, in the marketing function. Um, it was itself a subsidiary of uh, another company, which was itself a subsidiary of a holding company. And, and every year, um, you know, six months before the end of, of the financial year, we were starting to, to, to put together forecasts of how much we were going to make the next year, how we were going to do that. And, and that would get passed up the line. And that allowed the, the holding company that was a listed company to, you know, to talk to, to, to its investment community and, and say what's going to happen with the business and, 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 you know, do the whole investor relations side of things. But if suddenly we're moving away from uh, or, or even gradually moving away from from this model of of long term forecasting and and being more agile, it becomes quite difficult to 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 have a, a bottom up approach where suddenly a new thing can be launched because rather than being focused entirely on delivering the results you know that are needed today and next month, uh, we, we're we're thinking about you know what are the what are the possibilities what are the possibilities outside of you know what we've been mandated to do. Yeah, I mean, to to be fair, I, I so I I think we need to be honest about what is actually happening when we're making projections about the future. Because <laughs> one of the things that you know Agile has made very very clear, you know, there's like the these basic truths about that that software developers have realized a long time ago and now i think the rest of the business is is figuring out is that you know it, it's hard to know in advance what you're going to build it's hard to know how big that thing is how much work it's going to take and when you say that you do know those things the vast majority of time you are wrong right we are really crappy at predicting the future this is why the the waterfall approach you know is we're moving away from the waterfall approach, you know, overall, there's some things that are always going to be waterfall, right? I'm not suggesting that everything is going to become agile. Um, some things, you know, we need to work against hard timelines and, and, you know, we, it's possible to take this kind of measured twice cut, cut once approach in these certain areas that have narrow focus where we can actually do an okay job predicting the future. But most of the stuff that we're doing, certainly as marketers and, and product managers, it's, it's very difficult to predict the future and, in fact, in, impossible. And that's why, instead of trying to predict the future, we do something small, which is our MVP. We put it out there. We see how people respond to it. And we pivot as necessary as we basically pivot towards product market fit, right? So this idea that from a, the finance team is going to make a projection that's a year out is just like those projections are not good. It, they're just as not good as any marketer who builds a marketing plan at the beginning of the year and 
you know, tries to actually follow it over the next 12 months. Like, I, I challenge you to bring a marketer on the show who, who actually could say at the end of 12 months that the marketing plan that they wrote 12 months ago is what they executed against. That just, it's just, it's just nonsense. It doesn't happen. I right? feel another so, book brewing here, Roland. Perhaps uh, this is the beginnings <laughs> of the agile financier to go alongside the agile marketeer. <laughs> I, I actually think it's already been written. There's actually a great guy that I um, write a little bit about in in my book because his work is is so um, amazing. His his name's Bjart. I think his last name is pronounced Bod Bodness. He's the he was a very senior finance guy at Statoil, and he wrote a book called Beyond Budgeting, which is really a movement in the financial world about um, adopting agile principles in, in the finance world. And it's an absolutely fascinating um, book that I, I highly recommend um, reading. But the fundamental sort of insight that he has is that, you know, the finance organization should operate a lot more like a bank in that we talked, talked before about the stoplight versus the roundabout. That's actually an idea that comes directly out of Bjart's um, work. And you know, imagine that you're asking for money at the beginning of the year from your CFO based on this marketing plan, which you know is bullshit. Um, you know, th that does a couple different things. One, you're you're sort of setting a top of what you're going to spend because people know that if they go over their their budget, there's going to be consequences. But the worst part is actually it also sets the bottom because it means that if you don't spend the the full amount that you've been given that you're concerned that you're not going to get it next year and so the result of that is that marketers basically are spending money as they get to the end of the year if they're underspent on stuff that's not actually the highest roi because they they know that they need to spend the money and at the same time they've got peers who have an amazing opportunity to do something that has high roi who aren't getting access to that money because there's another marketer who's spending it on lower ROI stuff to make their budget number at the end of the year, right? Yeah. So imagine a, a world in which this, you know, the CFO operated much more like a bank, where just like when you come into that roundabout, you've got real-time data about the opportunity that you have, right? You're not making a decision based on historical data or data that is a projection many, many years out, or many, many months out, sorry. Right. So the 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 quality of the data, if you can go to the CFO and say, hey, I've got an opportunity right now to do something that I know is going to be higher high ROI, it's the CFO is going to be in a much better position to evaluate the efficacy of that investment. So there's a lot of interesting things that are happening in, in the finance world that I think could complement um, agile transformation in other parts of the business. I will say that I think that this this work is really we are at the very, very beginning. I think that at, in terms of, you know, Agile has been adopted um, largely in the product management side, but at really big companies, we're still implementing Agile on the product management side. At small companies, they're already there. It's just the best practice. When it comes to marketing, we're still fairly early. Small companies have definitely um, adopted Agile to some degree. Um, at big companies, you know, it's it's more entrepreneurial leaders who are bringing it in. So there's a lot of work to do in terms of adoption. We're still quite early in the adoption cycle in the marketing group. In finance, it's a handful of, of companies that are really taking this beyond budgeting approach. Um, so it's very, very early days there. Well, it sounds like a good book recommendation. We'll put a link into the show notes so that listeners can go and check that out after the podcast. 
Um, I mean, we started really with the story of uh, the beginnings of your book, Roland, and I guess that was kind of where I wanted to conclude as well. I mean, I know that writing a book, uh, writing anything, can be quite a, a lonely business. You know, it's quite a project and quest almost to undertake. Um, we're always interested within the MEX community about where people get their inspiration from. I mean, when you think about that process of writing the book about you know, this subject, which is obviously very timely at the moment, um, where did you look for your inspiration when you had mental blocks? Were there particular companies that you admired? Did you look outside this field entirely to help you overcome those, uh, you know, no doubt, not infrequent uh, mental blocks that occur when you're trying to write something of this scale? Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, you know, my, my experience of writing a book was not what I would describe as your typical lonely book writing experience because because it started as blogs and I got a lot of comments on those blogs and there was a lot of, you know, social interaction that I had around those. And generally, I would write a blog post because I had come across something and somebody had taught me something, basically. And the blog was just my way of saying, hey, other marketers, you should know about this too, because I thought, I think it's a great idea. I think it's really interesting. And, um, you know, it's a way for me to kind of consolidate my thinking about something to, to write a blog post about it. And then, you know, when I was writing the book and sort of trying to tie together all those ideas across the blogs into a more narrative, because the blogs, you know, are very focused on a particular idea. There's no narrative necessarily that you could get if you read them uh, across them. So what is the order in which you should share these ideas and how do they contribute to a larger narrative? I think that was um, a little bit of a harder part for for me to sort of figure out what's the best way of telling the story and tying these ideas together. I think, you know, having a community of marketers to to bounce the the narrative off of was incredibly valuable. I'm, and to be frank, now that the book is published, I'm I'm still getting feedback on it. Um, you know, as one of the things that I will tell you is a little bit frustrating about getting out of the digital realm and actually having something in print, of course, is that, you know, as soon as it's in print, you know, all of that feedback that you're getting, you know, you just have this urge to basically want to be able to change those, those print versions of the book. Um, and so I don't know if I will, uh, do an update or, or an addition on it, but I've already gotten a ton of feedback on the book that, um, that has really kind of informed the way that I talk about it when I present about the book and the way that I tell the story um, slightly differently. One of the things that we didn't really um, have a chance to, to touch on in this conversation is, you know, the, and the, the subtitle of the book is about um, customer experience and how, you know, today most marketers are really kind of the stewards of the brand. But marketers are really aspiring to be the steward of customer experience. That's kind of where the, the profession is headed. And in order to do that, they, they need to have a much stronger and collaborative relationship with product management. Because in many cases, if you look across the customer lifecycle or the customer experience, there's lots of things in there that marketers are in a great position. They've got purview over those experiences and they can measure those experiences, but they don't necessarily have the ability to actually change those experiences, right? A lot, a lot of those experiences are controlled by 
other folks, in many cases, product management. So without having that shared language and collaboration with product management and real partnership, they're not going to be able to actually be effective as, as the steward of customer experience. So that's kind of where I see things um, headed as a marketer. And I think as I've talked with people and, and presented about the book and written additional blog posts, one of the things that's sort of... Um, one, bits of, one of the bits of feedback that I've gotten is to actually tell stories about customer experience up front and speak to how Agile can be applied to um, in the service of improving customer experience. Yeah, it, it feels like a, a timely um, call and one which I think you'll find resonates quite strong with a lot of the listeners to this podcast. And perhaps we could leave that as a, a broad uh, invitation out there for members of the MEX community to get in touch and continue the discussion with you because I think that was really one of the motivations of getting together to have this conversation between us is that I think there is that uh, opportunity there to bring those worlds more closely together um, around agile principles and really uh, in general yeah. in the, the spirit of, uh, of encouraging greater collaboration between people working in traditionally designed product management roles and, and those on the marketing side. Um, now, mm -hmm. we'll put links in the show notes to the book uh, and the podcast, um, but where's the best place for people to connect with you online, Roland? Where's, uh, where can we find you online? Yeah, sure. Just uh, on Twitter, at rsmartly. Um, obviously, feel free to um, reach out to me on LinkedIn or reach out to me through uh, my blog as well at rollandsmart.com. That sounds great. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show, uh, especially in the middle of your vacation. We'll let you get back to the wonders of Jackson in, in Wyoming. Um, and it's been great to have the chance to talk this over with you. Oh, Likewise. Thanks, thanks for the opportunity. That's it for this edition of Mex Design Talk. Don't forget you can find a full archive of all of our previous episodes at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. And we've also got some great forthcoming episodes uh, ready to share with you over the next few weeks. They'll be coming out about every two weeks on a fortnightly schedule from now onwards. One is with Rob Graham, the global head of user experience at the pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca, which we actually recorded with him while we were at the MEX16 conference in London last month. Uh, and another is with Matt Hunter, who is the managing director at the Central Research Laboratory, an intriguing organization which is uh, doing uh, wonderful work accelerating startups at the intersection of digital and the manufacturing renaissance in the UK. So those are a couple to uh, give you an idea of what's coming up on MEX Design Talk over the next little while. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us by email. It's designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. We're on Twitter at MEXFeed. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.